Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Nicholas McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, and down the line from New York, we're joined by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. Our guest this week is John Cronin from Goodbody Stockbrokers in Dublin. Today we'll be talking about RBS as Alison Rose takes the helm. Secondly, a look at Iqbal Khan, the executive who's at the centre of a hiring spat between Credit Suisse and UBS. And finally, a look at the US investment banks that have been dragged down by the failure of the WeWork IPO. First, though, to RBS, which has a new chief executive, or at least it will do from the 1st of November. Alison Rose, in probably the worst-kept secret in banking, has been appointed as the new CEO. She was the lead internal candidate and had been for many months. Nick, it's a pretty awful time, actually, to be given this job, isn't it? Obviously, an ambition has been realised, but she's coming in at a time when we're about to exit from the EU in what might well be a no-deal Brexit, the economy's turning down, it's not going to be a particularly pleasant job. Yeah, the appointment's obviously a big milestone for the city. Alison will be the first woman to run any one of the big banks. RBS becomes the only company in the FTSE 100 that's got women in both of its top two executive roles, but not really a huge amount of time to stop and celebrate because, as you suggest, the challenges ahead are pretty difficult for all banks, including RBS, at the moment. Her predecessor, Ross McEwen, got most of RBS's big post-financial crisis restructuring challenges completed. But when Alison comes in, there's more big, mostly macro issues that are facing a lot of banks at the moment that she'll have to find some way to deal with when a lot of the pressures are outside of her control. As you mentioned, you've got Brexit coming up and the potential economic impact that that could bring. There's also profit margins are falling everywhere across the sector because of intense competition, especially in the mortgage market. It looks like interest rates are going to be lower for longer, which is always bad news for all retail banks, and RBS is particularly exposed to that. So between all of those challenges, you have to find some way of getting some sort of growth. And also, there are a couple of RBS-specific issues left, like its investment bank business. The future of that's still a little uncertain. Its Irish unit is not particularly strong and is still burdened with quite a lot of non-performing loans. And in the background, they have to work out what's going on with the government ownership of the bank, which is still obviously at 62% after its bailout in the financial crisis. Well, we're joined now by John Cronin from Goodbetty Stockbrokers in Dublin. John, do you agree with that bleak assessment? Yeah, I think the external environment is very challenging at the moment. Clearly, the macro backdrop is a challenge and the lower for longer rate environment is not constructive for bank profitability, particularly for RBS as a heavily current accounts biased business. But with that said, I think there are a number of ways in which she can make her mark. You know, I think maybe exercising an appropriate degree of caution early on in terms of guidance to the city on investment spend and the, the wider challenges facing the business. But you know, there are a lot of areas where she can make an impression. Firstly, I think 
you know, in terms of the reputational integrity and brand image, you know, some good work was clearly done by Ross McEwen during his tenure. But I think, you know, certainly there's more that can be done in terms of improving the reputation of the bank and its relationships with the regulator. We've seen some nasty surprises in the context of GRG, particularly in recent times. That was the restructuring unit, which obviously got into a lot of hot water over the way it dealt with clients. That's hopefully something that a line has been drawn under, I suppose. Correct. And also, I think in terms of service quality, consistently, RBS has fared very poorly in those surveys. And I think Alison is likely to spend a lot of time focusing on how to improve things there. And then there are some wider strategic problems facing her, too, in the context of NatWest markets, particularly. Cost income has been a significant problem there, not easy to deal with. And we heard Ross speak about its centrality to the business in terms of its linkages to the core commercial customer base in the past. But Rose may have a different view on that. Separately, on Ulster Bank, there's a lot of success there in terms of driving non-performing loans down to a stable level and some capital extraction in the mix, but there's also some strategic optionality in relation to that business. That's code for they might sell it, is it? Well, it's one of a number of potential actions. I wouldn't be conclusive in any respect on it, but certainly it's something she'll likely consider as part of the wider suite of strategic options. John, one final word before we have to go. Brexit, as I mentioned right at the beginning, is something that's hanging over well, I suppose every business in the UK and the banks, particularly at the sharp end of it in many ways. RBS is the biggest SME bank in Britain. And everyone keeps reminding us how potentially exposed SMEs are to the effects, especially of a no-deal Brexit. Does that mean RBS is particularly at risk here? I think yes, in the context of a hard exit and further pressures for the sector. We've seen some one-off issues within the book in recent reporting and clearly RBS is quite heavily exposed in that respect. With that said, I think look, risk management procedures have been pretty strong in the decade since the financial crisis. You know, RBS will be managing and monitoring a lot of leading indicators with respect to stress in that book. I think it would be sensible to think about adopting a cautious tone from a provisioning perspective in the context of running any of those books. Well, as you say, plenty of challenges ahead, and it'll be interesting to see how Alison Rose, as Nick pointed out, the first woman to run a big four bank, changes the style and approaches all of these challenges. John, thanks very much for joining us. Let's move on now to this fascinating story. It's almost like a TV drama, Stephen. Iqbal Khan, who has been poached by UBS to be one of its most senior execs, potentially a successor to Sergio Emotti as chief executive from Credit Suisse, and he's been at the centre of a kind of spying process. Tell us what's gone on. Well, basically, over the weekend, it emerged that this guy, the former head of wealth management, as you said, at Credit Suisse, who's moving to do the same job at UBS, was being tailed by three men in a car after dropping his son off at football practice with his wife. He couldn't shake them, and a chase ensued through the streets of Zurich, which culminated in Mr. Khan getting out of the car, shouting at them for the police and trying to take photos of them and the number plate which may or may not, the actual version is disputed, have resulted in a physical scuffle between them. Anyway, he reported this to his current employer, Credit Suisse, who have eventually been forced to admit that they hired the three private detectives to tail him. 
they've did this because they said they were worried he was tapping up their employees and their customers while still technically an employee of theirs until October the 1st. Isn't this routine for the sector? I mean, people always move employers. They always take some of their favourites with them. Why is this so sensitive? Well, it's sensitive because Zurich is a small town and Credit Suisse and UBS are vicious competitors, constantly trying to take each other's best employees and clients. Whilst on gardening leave, you're not supposed to talk to anyone connected with your job. So it would seem strange if Iqbal Khan had decided to breach this, especially since he's supposed to start in only six days. It kind of feels like he could have waited a week. So I guess, I don't know, maybe a lot of corporate spying goes on beneath the surface. Unfortunately, in Credit Suisse's case this time, they appear to have hired a bunch of Keystone cops who are unable to tail somebody discreetly and they've got caught. So whatever way you look at this, whatever Iqbal Khan may or may not have done, this is a terrible look for Credit Suisse. Yeah, absolutely. And what does it do, finally, for his chances of being CEO? This is a man we talked about before on the programme, actually, who has risen very fast up the ranks at Credit Suisse within the last decade, I think. He was the auditor to UBS, where he's now one of the most senior execs. What does this whole noisy, rather scurrilous episode say about his chances of getting to that top job? Well, the genesis of this is a dispute between Iqbal Khan and the CEO of Credit Suisse, a guy called Tijan Tiam. Basically, Mr. Khan, he's very, very ambitious. I think it's fair to say he's only 43 and he's in a rush to get to the top. Tijan Tiam made it clear he wasn't going anywhere at Credit Suisse anytime soon, forcing Mr. Khan to seek new pastures. UBS don't seem to have cooled on their new hire whatsoever. They say noise isn't following Mr. Khan around. This is all coming out of the other side. They think that he's a young, ambitious and hard-driving executive and he should have some rough edges to his personality at this age. So the succession at UBS has been a hot story for years. I mean, Sergio Amotti has been there in November. He will have been there for nine years. The chairman has been there for an equally long period of time. And the share price is not doing well. Key units, wealth management and investment banking are going in the wrong direction in what admittedly is a very challenging macro environment. So... Installing Iqbal Khan, you know, very young executive with a proven track record of driving performance, was a very astute move by them. So you can see why Credit Suisse has responded in such a inauspicious way to the loss of one of their top people that they can rightly claim that they cultivated and discovered. It could get noisy, though, I guess, along the way. The story is not finished yet, Patrick. Absolutely. Thanks very much for that. Well, let's move on to the last story of the day. And we're joined by Laura Noonan in the US, who's been taking a look at a fascinating story, which is the WeWork IPO, or the IPO that never happened. It was pulled, of course, in recent days after failing to match up to the valuation that its senior management had hoped for. And I wonder, Laura, how much damage this has done to the advisory banks on this. This is principally JP Morgan, but also some of the other big names on Wall Street, including Goldman Sachs. These banks had led WeWork to believe that they could aspire to a kind of market valuation running into the 70, 80, 90 billion dollar mark. And of course, as we know, this IPO was pulled after failing to reach anywhere near that. The valuation went as low as 15 billion dollars. How much egg does this leave on the face of Jamie Dimon, the head of JP Morgan, but also the other big investment banks? So I think certainly the banks haven't covered themselves in any glory here. I mean, 
it's always said that trying to value an IPO, it's more of an art than a science. But in this case, when you look at what the banks were telling WeWork before they were coming to market, I mean, there were valuations of as high as 104 billion from Morgan Stanley. Now, that is something that was given in 2018 and they, they later paired that back. But still, several of the banks came in around the 60 billion mark. This was in part based off of the most recent SoftBank investment, which valued it at 47 billion. And then in the event, the market wouldn't even go at a 15 billion valuation. So I think when there's a gulf that's that wide between what the banks guide a company that it can realistically achieve and what the market actually values the company, I think that's something that is going to raise some issues for the banks in terms of their credibility. Another issue is that a lot of the fall in valuation was due to the corporate governance structures at WeWork and some of the payments between connected companies and between WeWork and its chief executive. Now, you would think that when the banks were doing due diligence around WeWork ahead of the IPO, they would have uncovered some of those issues and you would wonder why they couldn't have maybe encouraged WeWork to change some of those structures before it was actually listed rather than WeWork agreeing to change them after they actually published details. So I think that's something else that the banks will have to worry about. As to how big a deal it is for them, I mean, banks would say they work on hundreds of IPOs every year. One IPO, albeit a very big one, is not the end of the world. But I think looking at it from the outside, I think that the banks have taken a bit of a reputational hit here. And Laura, who exactly is most in the spotlight? I mentioned JP Morgan there. So JP Morgan is a bank which is closest to WeWork. Their chief executive, Jamie Dimon, is the man who WeWork's chief executive, Adam Neumann, called on and visited on Sunday as this whole thing was blowing up. And JP Morgan was the lead bank for the IPO. They are also a lender to Adam Neumann personally. So I think JP really has its hands all over this thing. The issue for a JP is that being very close to WeWork was a good thing up until quite recently. And it enabled them to get what was probably one of the most coveted IPO roles of the year. So that was positive for them. Now, obviously, the relationship is coming into more scrutiny. Now, people at JP Morgan would say that Adam Neumann, the WeWork chief executive, and Jamie Dimon, the JP Morgan chief executive, aren't as close as Adam Neumann would like to make out and that Adam drops Jamie's name into various conversations, but that they aren't as close as that might make it seem. Now, obviously, it's in JP Morgan's interest to say that now in the event that WeWork had got away and they had done a big IPO for a 50 billion, 55 billion valuation. You wonder if JP Morgan would be looking at things differently and suddenly we'd hear that Adam and Jamie were the best of friends. What about the broader implications for IPOs for the rest of the year? This isn't a great look. In terms of what it means for the IPO for the rest of the year, I mean, the one thing that we have to point out is that this wasn't a great IPO market anyway. Market uncertainty, the big macro tensions, things like Brexit, things like the trade war have really made companies quite cautious about listing. So it's not like there was a great IPO market for this listing to derail. And indeed, one of the reasons that the valuations for WeWork came back had nothing to do with WeWork. It's just it's a difficult, shaky market. So in that sense, I don't think it's going to really made things that much worse than they already were. The broader implication of this is what it means for companies that stay private for such a long time and achieve such a high valuation based on the investments of a relatively small number of parties. So in the case of WeWork, the valuation of $47 billion was derived from the most recent SoftBank investment. And basically they said that the value of WeWork was directly related to whatever SoftBank was willing to pay for its stake in it. And what they found out is that actually a single person valuing something is very different to a market valuing something. So I think bankers wouldn't like to see companies stay private for as long as they've stayed previously, simply because you haven't got that kind of independent valuation. So I think we may see companies coming to the market sooner. The other thing that coming to the market sooner 
gives you is it gives you that layer of corporate governance. It gives you that layer of scrutiny. And you do wonder how different WeWork would look had it come to the market soon. I mean, traditionally, if you can get a lot of private money easily, there are certainly advantages to doing that. You have less overhead. You haven't got the burdens of being in the market. But actually being in the market does impose a restraint, which can be helpful for some of these companies who have been growing very quickly. Well, thanks very much for that, Laura. We'll speak to you again soon. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you to Stephen, Nick and Laura and our guest, John Cronin from Good Buddy Stockbrokers. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.